I'm Erica. And we are starting a brand new series for this new season. We'll cheer, but not very loudly because it's Lent. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> we have uh, often over the years in this podcast done a, a series that will take us through all the weeks of Lent. And for those who don't speak church nerd, Lent is that season of 40 days of church marks, not including Sundays. Or... Apparently, sometimes the 40 days does include Sundays, but you don't count Holy Week. Interesting. Yeah. Either way, well... I mean, but Holy Week is like a special super time to fast, so if you're, like, fasting, you have to super fast during Holy Week. So somehow you get to 40. It's meant to be this season that is preparation for and focus on the passion of Jesus that culminates in the story of Jesus' death and of resurrection. So this is a time often when we're centered on the stories of Jesus' suffering and death and on the cross, which is sort of giving us the direction for our uh, new series that we're just beginning. Tell us about it, Erica. (laughs) So we're going to be doing a series on what is has been traditionally called the Stations of the Cross. And being that none of us are Catholic, this is kind of a little bit out of our territory. I mean, I was supposed to be raised Catholic, but that's a whole other story for another day. And we're all, we're all <laughs> Christians around the table, so we all know that Jesus did die on the cross. Yeah. We know that story. But the particular practice of having stations. Yeah, the practice of stations is typically associated with the Roman Catholic Church. It might even be associated with the Orthodox. I'm not positive. I'm not as, I'm not as sure that it is, because I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll have to explore that in further episodes, because their, their piety is so different and so oriented around resurrection. Different. But iconography could also mm-hmm. pull something mm-hmm. into there. I'm not sure. I've never been in an Orthodox Church. Um, but this this practice started um, pretty early on in Christian history. I'm not exactly sure when it started, um, but it was kind of early Christians were, were supposed to take pilgrimages as they were able to Jerusalem to be able to walk what is what is famously called the Vila de Rosa, the, the path that supposedly Jesus walked from his trial to his crucifixion at Golgotha. Well, clearly not everybody can do that because of various things, and especially because at certain times in early church history, Israel was kind of being led by people that weren't Christian or Jewish. It was dangerous for a lot of history. It was, sure. Yeah, it was dangerous for Christians to, to show up and, and, and walk through Jerusalem. And so the Catholic Church started this tradition of the Stations of the Cross. And early, early versions of it, and this is something I just recently learned um, through some research, only included seven stations. Um, our, our, the stations of the cross we know now today have 14 stations. So, um, But there's there's two different versions to the stations of the cross. Um, the traditional set, um, like I said, has 14 stations. And these are all supposed to be moments of Jesus on the way to the cross, yeah. right? So many of them are biblical, and some of them in one set are Extra biblical. Extra, that's a lovely charitable way of saying <laughs> that we don't know where they came from. <laughs> They're from church tradition. Ah. And so um, the traditional set starts with Jesus being condemned to death by Pilate. And it, you know, he slowly, he works his way down the Villa Della Rosa. He encounters certain people. You know, he's carrying his cross. He falls um, three different times in the original set. He comes across his mother Mary and Simon of Cyrene. Um he comes across the women of Jerusalem. He's stripped of his clothes. He's nailed to the cross. He dies. He's taken down. He's placed in the tomb. And then there's some other things like 
a woman named Veronica um, <laughs> that comes and wipes his face at some point. Um, it, it, that's station number six in the traditional version, which is one of those extra biblical mm-hmm. church tradition kind of things. Um, For the record, there is not a woman named Veronica that appears in the Gospels that wipes Jesus' face. <laughs> yes. Because I don't think Veronica would be the name that she would have been given, at that, even if there was. She probably would have been a Mary. <laughs> <laughs> one of the Mary, many Marys. This, this raises for me... Um, a, a, a question I've been wrestling with for a little bit of time in, the, in our conversation leading up to this. And, like, the the temptation in my mind is to, like, ridicule, like, anything that, like, doesn't... Well, there's no biblical story for this, so, you know, how could anybody mm-hmm. be think this is important to do? And on the other hand, we do this lots of times in other ways where we invent biblical characters, like the innkeeper's or innkeeper's wife in the Christmas story, right? So, like, yeah. Yeah. we've had conversation before, oh, there actually isn't an inn in mm-hmm. the first place, that's not really what Luke's gospel is saying anyhow, mm-hmm. and yet we're perfectly comfortable imagining children's books where there's an innkeeper or sermons where there's an innkeeper and innkeeper's mm-hmm. wife, and, like, well, if, if we're okay with that, if that is somehow... You're allowed to use your faithful imagination there and imagine things mm-hmm. around the fringes of biblical stories. Okay, maybe I don't have to get so fussy about imagining that there was uh, someone named Veronica mm-hmm. there. Or at least the point is not, not the, the whole salvation of the world doesn't hang on whether there was or is not a Veronica. This is all about the story of Jesus dying on the cross that is at the heart of our faith. Yeah. That's actually a um, tradition in Jewish teachings. It's called Midrash. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's where you take basically something from scripture and you imagine and wonder and explore different aspects of that story that are not written down. Mm -hmm. Um, It's similar, I think, to... She's going to say it. She's going to say it. I am. It's similar to fan fiction. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I'm glad you two knew where she was going with that. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things I don't want to say it because that, like... That sounds... It could sound pejorative, but you don't mean it pejorative. Right, no. Um, You know, I grew up in the... I was a teenager in the early 2000s. Harry Potter fan fiction was life. (laughs) But, you know, it's... It's... It's a way to wonder, what if, or... You know, but I think both yeah. are done out of respect for the original text. Sure. You know, yes. sure. I don't know much about fan fiction, but it's my understanding. It, it's you know a way to, ex- like you said, explore the what ifs mm-hmm. that yeah. are in the text. Yeah, that yeah. is you know the original Harry Potter books by J.K. Rowling. Yeah, you know, just like Midrash is a way to explore what's in the original text yeah. of the Torah. It, it seems to me too, like the, the, your, your reminder that part of like traditional orthodox Judaism is midrash that like that part of the way Judaism at least in some strains treats its scriptures is that there's this invitation to engage in that way that to, that sometimes Christians get uncomfortable with because like wait you're you're allowed to invent things and mm-hmm. Judaism will say it's not like that but it's sort of a thought experiment or a playful mm-hmm. exercise that sort of allows you to have engagement with what does God mean in this story or what does God have to say to me, that kind of thing. And so again, I, I'm not trying to say that even that Veronica at the Station of the Cross is the same thing as doing Midrash, but there's there's something similar uh, that we're already doing that Protestants have been doing lots of ways, lots of times, and we sometimes forget that we're doing it or we imagine that we've got a biblical root for it, so it must be okay for us, but Veronica's out of bounds or something. Well, and... Oh, go ahead. <clears throat> And so uh, I I had friends who were English majors in college, mm-hmm. which again was the height of when Harry Potter fan fiction was like <laughs> super popular. And but you know a lot of English professors were very anti fan fiction because mm-hmm. you can argue that's plagiarism. Um, and then a couple of my English major friends who 
liked fan fiction pointed out that uh, Dante's Inferno is Bible fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. 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 I would even say, too, it's possible, and I don't mean to say this as a, a good or bad thing, but say that I think we do it. Sometimes even with biblical material, when we rearrange things in sort of new orders of things. So even mm-hmm. like when you take like a series of the seven last words of Christ from the cross, you have to couple together all four Gospels and make them into a chronology that isn't there in mm-hmm. any one Gospel. And again, you can make the case, well, these are all in the Bible. Isn't that allowed? And you could say, sure, that, that may be somehow different than inventing somebody named Veronica. <laughs> but you also then have to imagine a chronology that maybe isn't intended, that each yeah. of the Gospel writers tells their story their way. And like on that particular matter... It matters that Ma- that Matthew and Mark have the last thing that Jesus say, be my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something intentional going on there. Mm-hmm. And if you soften that by saying, well, he said that first, but then later he came around and he said, into your hands I commend my spirit. Well, Luke's trying to do something different. And I think we sometimes get uncomfortable. So we, let's, let's glom them all together so it's got a happy ending to the crucifixion. And he ends with a happy note of, into your hands I commend my spirit, when that's not what, that's not mm-hmm. the story Matthew and Mark are trying to tell. So we're already doing this, We even just within the biblical text, we just sometimes are honest about the way we're doing it. Well, and some of the things from the traditional um, stations, like Jesus falls three different times in the traditional stations, mm-hmm. none of which coincide with him meeting Simon of Cyrene. Mm-hmm. Now, we know from the biblical text that when he meets Simon of Cyrene, he can't carry his cross any mm-hmm. longer. Mm-hmm. Assumingly, he has fallen. Mm-hmm. How many times he fell before then or after that? Right. We don't know. The man was beaten almost to death. I mean, he right. lost a lot of blood. I can't imagine him walking the three miles sure. from Pilate's house to Galgotha without falling a few times. So, again, it's it's kind of like that mid-rash, you know, well, maybe this happened. We don't have it directly in Scripture, right? but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Right, right, right. And for that matter, too, even, even the matter of falling, like, John's Gospel... I think makes the point of saying Jesus carries the cross by himself and doesn't mention Simon of Cyrene, Mm -hmm. but the synoptics give us Simon of Cyrene and have this interesting bit about, like, isn't he like the father of Rufus and Alexander? And you're like, like, somebody must have known who Rufus was. And, like, that mattered to to Mark's readers, but we're like, who's Rufus? Um, But, like, even across the biblical writers, some make a deal about Jesus couldn't carry the cross by himself. Mm -hmm. And John, who's much more interested in the symbolism of things, like, no, he carried it by himself, and I'm not going to mention Simon of Cyrene. That would undercut my symbolic purpose Mm -hmm. here. Um, the, The biblical writers are kind of doing, shaping the tradition already as they tell the story. And that doesn't mean what they're doing is making stuff up. It means that they're a lot more like movie makers. They're editors, taking the material and shaping it for the purpose they want to... And they're all trying to tell the same story, but with different different emphases. And mm-hmm. if that's true, um, then um, then maybe that gives us some wiggle room to how how could meditation on the, the cross of Jesus and the, the path of the cross be helpful for us and our spirituality? Okay, are the stations of the cross a helpful tool for some people? And then, okay... Maybe it's not for everybody, but maybe that is something that could be helpful for people. Um, and considering that is maybe how this could be useful for us, a, a bunch of novice Protestants. <laughs> well, and I will say, I, I did, um, in my former parish, at least for one season of Lent, I, I went every Friday and we did the Stations of the Cross at a Catholic church. And it was very helpful for me because it just helped to draw me into that story mm-hmm. in a way that, at least in my denomination, in my traditions, I don't get. Can I ask you, what does it look like to do the stations? Is it like standing at each one and, and like saying something to each of them? Is it walking and praying? So, what does it look like? 
Well, it depends because I've I've done the stations at a monastery as well where mm-hmm. it wasn't guided. Okay. Um, so when I did it at the Catholic Church in Warren, um, we we were just in pews and we'd have like these little booklets and it would be a different booklet every week because over the over the years popes and other Catholic scholars and theologians and priests and others had written like little prayers that go with each station. Mm-hmm. And so the priest would go, the priest and some acolytes would go to the first station and uh, he would he would read his part from the book and we would have our response and there'd be a point of kneeling and standing, you know, the Catholic aerobics as I like to call them. <laughs> Lutherans do the same aerobics as well. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they would move on to the second station. And so we remained in our seats um, in the pews where, and then the priest would go around um, that was that particular church. It might be different in other churches, depending on kind of where the stations are located, if there's room for everybody. Um, it's usually a small group, so we probably could have gone with the priest, but that's just that's the way they did it at um, at St. Joe's in, in Warren. Um, I've been to a monastery where they have the stations kind of laid out on these little pillars that mm-hmm. you just kind of walk, or, because nobody's guiding it. It's a, it's a silent monastery anyway, so the, the monks aren't really going to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> they just sort of point. <laughs> You don't really have a lot of interaction with the monks besides, you know, kind of watching them and, and joining with them in their various prayer times. Um, and so you can just kind of go, there's no words, it's just the pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just kind of walk and you reflect. And assuming that mostly Catholics go there and they're going to know the stations better than this little Protestant girl. Um, you know, they can kind of recall, okay, station one is this and station two is this and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. So, again, I, I like the way you... you framed it like these these things could be helpful tools for anybody regardless of tradition mm-hmm. and this can be useful as a way of, of reflection or or uh, like sort of maybe even the Lenten discipline of like focusing on what what things are at the center of our faith or that that central story and that it's not it's, it's not done with a sense of oh I have to do this to make God happy but more like this is about helping me get recentered on this the central story of our faith well and, and when I was up north I I preached Good Friday services, and mm-hmm. so working through the stations throughout this the season of Lent helped me to really kind of again go back to that time, go back to that day in the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So then, when I got to Good Friday, and I was preaching about it because Good Friday is a, an interesting day to preach yeah. um, because you can't jump to the hope of Easter; like you just have to sit. Yeah. In, in Jesus's death and you have to sit in that darkness. Mm-hmm. And so the stations helped me to do that throughout Lent. Mm-hmm. So then when I preached Good Friday, I was able to do that and not want to even give a glimmer of hope just so we had to sit in that and mm-hmm. get uncomfortable for a minute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there's also, there's a traditional set of stations that we talked about. Okay. Um, Pope John Paul II, one of my favorite popes. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he's really pleased to know that. <laughs> well, he's a saint now, so I hope so. Uh, <laughs> on Good Friday in 1991, um, debuted a set of scriptural stations of the cross, which, I mean, are exactly what their name implies. They are all based out of scripture, where the traditional stations have some extra biblical <laughs> things. Bonus people. <laughs> <laughs> bonus people and... Mid- Actual descriptions of Jesus falling multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's some midrash kind of things. Um... John Paul II's um, stations follow from Jesus starting in the Garden of Gethsemane and then uh, to being laid in the tomb. Um, but they are exactly, you know, it, it follows the story. He's in the garden. He's praying. He's betrayed by Judas. He's condemned by the Sanhedrin. 
He's denied by Peter, judged by Pilate, um, scourged and crowned with thorns. Jesus takes up his cross at Station 7. Um, Jesus is helped um, by Simon of Cyrene. He meets the women of Jerusalem. He's crucified. He promises the kingdom to the repentant thief. He entrusts Mary and John to each other, his mother and his disciple. He dies. He's laid in the tomb. So in our series, in our conversation, we're going to be following that, that track, uh, both because we feel like we are a little bit more comfortable with knowing this, the, knowing we can look up these episodes in our Bibles rather yes. than like having to guess at who Veronica is, um, but also that maybe that's maybe more in line with where folks in our listening communities are at. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So there may be points along the way as we go through the series that we may go, hey, time out. If we were following the other traditional track, this would be the moment to talk about Veronica or falling number three or something like that. But we'll follow the, the track of what's, what uh, is sometimes called the scriptural way of the cross. And in some ways, like even without being part of the Roman Catholic tradition, I do belong to a tradition that on the Sunday before Easter Sunday, which is Palm and Passion Sunday for us, mm-hmm. we do the retelling of the whole Passion Gospel. Uh, so the, the story that goes basically in the course of that one morning, we go from the triumphal entry through to the burial of Jesus. And we do that, in a sense, without necessarily having little scenes for it or vignettes for it. But that there's a long, deep-standing tradition for that kind of uh, recollection of hearing that whole story together. And... So our listeners are aware in 2007, Pope Benedict XVI approved the scriptural set as another set for Catholics to use for meditation and uh, for public celebration. So now the Catholic Church has, you know, we've, we've talked about two sets, but I mean, it is official. These are things that have been allowed by the Pope. Um, for them to go so, uh, with either way. So to be clear, the new scriptural Stations of the Cross, which Pope John Paul II introduced, is not replacing the traditional set. Right? Not, like, not the, the traditional set is still alive and well and like... I'm assuming because I, I served Warren well after 2007 and mm-hmm. we were using the traditional set still. So, I mean, it can be an either-or thing. Yeah. Okay. It's with Veronica and without. <laughs> um, You're obsessed with Veronica. <laughs> she just has such a 90s name. It really. I mean, like, it's almost like like you expect, like, a Tiffany to show up as well or and something. A Britney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet her name came into, you know, centuries before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so, so what we're going to be exploring as our series goes along, several uh, of these stations, these moments in the story of Jesus path to the cross, the Via Dolorosa, uh, in each of our episodes, talking about what, what they mean, and maybe even, like, what what it means for us all these thousands of years later. So not just what did this mean in the narrative of Jesus dying, mm-hmm. but what, what, is, what difference does it make? Why why do we tell this story? Why is this an important thing to, to remember and to consider? Um, and, and again, I think that's part of what this whole practice of this season of Lent is all about, that it's not simply recitation of, Jesus did these things a long time ago, know these facts, but what does it mean to be people who tell this story to say that somehow God is most clearly seen in all the places you could spot God in the execution of a criminal at the hands of the empire in the backwater of the, of the, the empire 2,000 years ago? That, 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 that seems a pretty significant claim that Christians make, and, and mm-hmm. unpacking that is sort of where we're at then. Are there other things that we need to say to one another as we get ready for this adventure of uh, three Protestants walking <laughs> the Stations of the Cross together? 
I told you all I know so far. All right, well, uh, we'll, we'll invite you to come along with us uh, this whole Lenten season as we trace the steps of Jesus on the way to the cross and what that means for our lives as well. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you. Bye.